Um, but I want to read you a bit of Mark chapter 9. Okay, and we are, just to explain to visitors, we're trying to read all of Mark um, in the services um, between when we started and Easter, which we are going to manage, um, if you're here on Good Friday anyway with us, we'll manage to read all of Mark. So um, bear with us today as we try and um, get through chapters 9 and chapter 10. But that's why I'm going to read you this passage um, <coughs> from the beginning of Mark. It's called a transfiguration. That's what we call it. So after six days... This is actually six days after, Jesus, uh, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. Then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So I'm going to start reading from Mark chapter 9, reading from verse 14, and it's entitled in the NIV, Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the, father's boy, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, 
convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now Jesus predicts his death a second time. <coughs> they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was, at, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. and We told him to stop because it was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. True, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward causing to stumble. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Thanks. Take a deep breath. Keep the Bible open in front of you. Poke your neighbour if they're looking, if their eyes are drooping. We're going on into chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. 
And he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you like, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked round and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. <clears throat> but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples were even more amazed. And they said to, one, said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Said Jesus. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant 
and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be, uh, sorry, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, were sitting by the roadside begging. And when they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Let's pray. Father God, please... Open our eyes to the reality of the risen Christ this morning. Help us see clearly through these scriptures what kind of Messiah Jesus is. What kind of discipleship is in front of us. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So as we said earlier... Um, we're following uh, uh, Paul's command to Timothy to devote ourselves to the public uh, reading of Scripture. Um, so it's not our usual uh, practice, but we are reading through the whole of Mark. Uh, and obviously, we can't expound it all, but let's have a little look at uh, a lesson or two for today. So one writer says that something amazing happens when a child <laughs> looks down a microscope for the, for the first time. Because what looks like a, a, a speck of dust to the, to, to the naked eye can become a, a, a seed. Um, or what looks like a, a little uh, mucky insect uh, can be, look, become something with iridescent uh, wings and a, an incredible um, eye structure full of uh, pattern and, and form. And something... Similar happens when we build powerful uh, space telescopes. What looks to the naked eye, all we can see are kind of twinkling dots in the sky. But they're revealed to be swirling galaxies, billowing gas clouds, burning suns of, of, of different colours. Or when we use an X-ray or an, an MRI machine and we get to see in, inside yourself, if you've ever seen your own X-rays, um, things we can't see with the naked eye is revealed to us. And sometimes those pictures stay in the mind's eye. So when you go outside and look at the stars for the next time, you think, gosh, that little kind of drift of things across Orion's belt are, are whole galaxies um, uh, in themselves. Or when you look at the blue bottle and you're really annoyed by it, you kind of have a little bit of you thinks, but don't they have amazing eyes? Something sticks in the mind's eye. And something similar happens today to Peter, James and John in the beginning of Mark 9. So last week we saw that Messiahship defines discipleship. What kind of Messiah Jesus is defines what kind of disciples we are. 
And the disciples are struggling with this. They haven't worked out what kind of Messiah Jesus is, that he's a, he's a suffering servant. And as we've seen in the, in the readings we, we read just today, they're still struggling with this. So it's critical that they and we see Jesus clearly and understand his mission. So today, uh, Peter, James and John, they've had a privileged glimpse through the spiritual MRI machine, however you want to call it. The curtains have been torn back for a moment and they see heavenly realities which inform and should transform their discipleship as they walk with Jesus. So I've got three simple questions. Um, when we look at the transfiguration, how, how did this happen? Next slide. What did they see and what did it mean? And I think it's clear that this happens at Jesus' invitation. It's Jesus who calls them and he takes them, Peter, James and John, up the mountain. It happens by divine appointment. But this comes six days after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah in Caesarea Philippi. And so that, uh, that clearly demarked timescale marks in Mark's mind that this is connected with Peter's confession of faith. So Peter has confessed that he understands Jesus to be the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's God's chosen king. And as a result, a few days later, they're taken up um, on the mountain and they get this vision of Christ. You don't get many, if any, of these kind of experiences in the Christian life. I trust that you do and have had experiences where, where it seems like heaven has opened for a moment um, and you've seen uh, behind the scenes um, a little bit, some little kind of taste of the, the glory of God. But they come after the profession of faith. They come after you have become a Christian. Not before, at least in the West. It's a very interesting phenomenon as we talk to mission partners that uh, in other countries where the background is not Christianity, then you find people do come to Christ because they've had a vision or, or a dream uh, of Christ and he's met them directly. Or as my brother-in-law would say, Ashraf, he would say, I, I, I met Christ as I met you. He appeared to me in, in, in that real way. He's, he's an Egyptian, he's from a different background. But in this country, it seems to me that God treats us slightly differently. Because we have a Christian heritage, you know about Christ, and for, for most of society it has been um, ignored. So the application is this, if, if, you are, if you are waiting or uncertain, and, and you're waiting for, for Christ to appear to you before you uh, get on the way with him, before you follow him, then don't. You've had plenty of revelation about who Jesus is um, just by dint of really being in this country and by being in church. You, you know the stuff. Don't wait um, because you may never get a sign. It's the Pharisees. It's a sign of unfaith. It's the Pharisees, as we saw last week, who come to Jesus and say, we want a sign. We want it in front of us. We want it in the test tube now. And Jesus says, no. So if you want a sign, you have to get on the way. <coughs> You have to confess Christ of Lord and you have to be on the road with him. You have to be following, you have to be going somewhere. 
What did they see? Second question. They see Jesus in a dazzling whiteness that they have no comparison to. I think we, would, we might have said, you know, Jesus uh, pictured brighter than the biggest spotlight they could put on them. But, but it's lovely, isn't it, that their, their comparison is he's whiter than any kind of bleach could make anything. He's radiant with the glory of God. He is like uh, the Ancient of Days in, in Daniel 7. Uh, this amazing radiant white. He's like the Jesus of Revelation 1, but of course um, the disciples don't know Revelation 1 yet. Elijah and Moses appear. Why these two? It's a bit odd, isn't it? And I think the answer is because there was a tradition, an Old Testament tradition that they didn't die, but they were taken bodily um, to be uh, with God in heaven. So you can check that out. You um, go back and read about Elijah. Uh, read again the, the death of Moses. So the Jews understood that they'd gone bodily to be um, with the Lord. Uh, and so what we're seeing here is a little bit like Revelation. We're seeing heaven opened. And in heaven there are Elijah um, and, and Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. Jesus is holding an audience with Elijah and Moses. And only Jesus remains after they disappear. It is, it is Jesus who is the higher. Moses and Elijah, their words and their work, they prefigured and they prophesied Christ. But he is the fulfillment uh, of what they did. He is the one who remains and has work to do. And we read that uh, a cloud appears and, and covers them. So this is like a little mini Sinai where the Lord came down uh, and appeared on the top of the mountain. In this case, we think they're on Mount Hermon. In some ways, it's like a little apocalypse. Or maybe that's just because I was talking about Revelation uh, last Sunday night, and Revelation is in the back of my mind. But it is like what happens in John's vision, except this happens for real, um, that heaven is, heaven is opened. And, and they get to see for, for a moment what Jesus, in all his glory, is like. What does it mean? Well, Peter has, Peter has understood and confessed that Jesus is Messiah with his mouth, verbally. And now Peter has seen visually that Jesus is the Messiah. And in both contexts, Peter has to be uh, corrected and has to be told that the Messiah um, He's going to suffer, and he's going to die. As he's telling them about keeping this vision to themselves, um, Jesus tells them about Elijah. Um, the understanding is that, of course, Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist has been beheaded and killed. This is what discipleship is. And poor old Peter in the middle of this. I sometimes think that a number of these things that occur in brackets um, in Mark, because of course we think this is uh, Mark recording mainly the, uh, Peter's recollections. These things that are in brackets, I wonder whether kind of like Peter said, you must please put this in. Um, so please put, he, didn't, he was, didn't know what to say. He was so, you know that bit about the tabernacles? I didn't know what I was saying. Just, can you explain that just a little bit? Mark says, okay. There was a Jewish hope that uh, the Lord would return and tabernacle 
with his people. And so Peter sees glorious Elijah, Moses, Jesus, the Lord's returning. Uh, Let's build some tabernacles, some booths, some shelters. So it's not entirely stupid. It's just that Peter needs to see that Jesus is in himself. The Lord tabernacling with his people, as John will say in John 1. Jesus, Jesus is the new tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is, is the space, the place into which people need to come if they're going to write, write with the Lord. Peter cannot build a space to put Jesus in. Jesus is the space in which Peter needs to come. I sometimes think, uh, you know, when you think about the language you use on a Sunday morning, it's not for us to welcome God here. God is already welcome. He's here and he welcomes us if we will come. So I'm tempted to say instead of transfiguration, most of us don't get a vision of transfiguration, but we get we get Revelation. Yes, the revelation of all the scripture and then the book of Revelation at the end. As you can see, it's in the back of my mind. But however much you don't understand of Revelation, and I hope some people after last Sunday night were tempted to give it a go, you could read it and simply see how Jesus is revealed. One way to read Revelation, read just read Revelation 1, but read to the end, read it and see how Jesus is revealed, and that will give us, give you a flavor of what Peter and James and John experienced on the mountaintop. But I hope and pray for you that there are moments of vision. Moments where your, your picture of God changes. It is important. What do you have in your mind's eye um, when you come to prayer, when you come to church to worship, uh, when you read the scriptures? What, what do you have in, in your mind's eye? And Peter and James of John have had that changed forever. And you and I should have what's in our mind's eye um, repeatedly refined by, by reading scripture and, re- and reflecting on it. And we, Leslie and I, are reading a, a book about marriage uh, by, by Tim Keller. Um, and he just made the point that God is self-giving. God is a self-giving God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, are, are all self-giving. And it changed in an instant my view of God in my mind's eye. All too much of my father is kind of um, flows over into my picture of, of, of who God is and distorts it and not usually in a very helpful kind of way. But in a moment that changed in seeing that the father and the son and the Holy Spirit are all self-giving and how I come to God has changed quite dramatically in a little moment. Nothing, you know, there was no mountaintop, there was no unveiling, but something changed. And how I see God in my mind's eye, which then changes how I relate to him in prayer, change in the moment. And I pray that for you, but that is your reason. That is your reason for coming to scripture, isn't it? So please don't see Bible reading as a chore. Um, If you are coming to the scriptures prayerfully, um, submissively, regularly, God will speak to you. I guarantee you. You can put that to the test. And I have no fear of asking you to do that because God will speak to you. And you will have moments of revelation.
So Peter's had these two moments of, of revelation. He's realised that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's still not worked out um, what kind of Messiah Jesus is. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected in his path and our path. Inevitably goes the same way. I'm going to blast through a couple of things which we can't really we can't really get to grips with. When they come down from the mountain, um, the disciples uh, we get a, a, a situation. It's a little bit like Moses comes down from the Mount Sinai and he finds there's just a, there's a massive noise going on because they've got into idol worship and they've created a golden calf um, and they're going off paste and, the, and there's a massive stuff going on. And the disciples come down, they find. Uh, sorry, Jesus comes down, he finds the disciples arguing with the teachers of the law, and he finds a father complaining that they can't drive uh, the demon out of his son. And it is quite poignant, because the boy has had epilepsy-type seizures from childhood, though clearly it, the, there's a demonic presence because it's been throwing him into fire and water. And the father is just a model of many people coming to Jesus. If you can, please um, take pity on me and one of the lovely things in Mark is that Jesus is constantly full of pity he is constantly responding to people um, in, in compassion and so he says as he says I am a, I am able everything's possible to those who have faith and faith is not some inner quality that you can kind of measure with a spiritual meat thermometer you know you kind of stick it in somebody's life and um, what's what's the temperature of their faith Faith is just an act of bringing your inability and your impotence before Christ. And we saw that back in, in Jesus' hometown um, in chapter 6. He couldn't do miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Why could he, why could he not do miracles back home? Was Jesus not powerful enough? Or was people's lack of faith like kryptonite and it kind of blocked his power? No, it's because in their lack of faith, they didn't bring anybody to him. In their lack of faith, they didn't bring their people before Christ, except for a handful, and he healed them. Faith is recognizing you can't do something and coming before Christ, asking him for his pity and asking him to make it possible. And that's what the father does. But in this conversation with Jesus, he, he's acted in faith. He's brought his boy before Jesus. Uh, and Jesus tells him, everything is possible to those who believe. And in this conversation, uh, uh, the father says, faith's got me here. But now that I've got here, I'm not so sure. And so he, he says these immortal words, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And maybe you're at that point. Faith has got you in front of Christ, asking, and as yet nothing has happened. What's the faithful response? The faithful response is to stay there. Stay there and ask again. And ask Jesus to strengthen your faith until the thing you've asked for comes. And what's wrong with the disciples? Why can't they cast it out? 
I think it's just a bit of a picture of ministry without Jesus. Ministry without Jesus is unpersuasive in conversation, it's impotent um, in spiritual warfare. I can't help but think that these, this is ministry without Jesus. I can't help thinking that they need the Holy Spirit, but he hasn't been given yet. But let's move on. We're running out of time. Um, some lessons from the, the rest of the chapters. Let me go really quickly. Um, at 9.30, they leave that place and they go through Galilee. Let me just give you a, a very briefly some lessons on discipleship from the rest of this chapter. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. Um, our God is a God who loves to turn the status quo upside down. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know that. If you want to be a star in the kingdom of God, you've got to be the servant of all. Whoever is not against us is for us, number two. It's about a kind, of, I think, about a spiritual generosity. If, if somebody is having spiritual, spiritual power and they're working for the Lord, um, but they don't believe entirely the same things as you, let's be spiritually generous. It's better to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. This is an absolute truth. Although it's hyperbole, it's also true. Um, it's better to go... It's better to enter life main. In other words, whatever is stopping you following Jesus, cut it off, deal with it quickly, because it's better. It's better to follow Jesus. There's nothing you can lose which is, um, which is worse than spending a life outside of Christ in hell. Whatever it costs you to get into the kingdom of God, whatever holiness it means, whatever you have to cut off, do it. And then what God has joined together, let no one, let no one separate. Discipleship involves being uh, faithful. Faithful primarily to your, to, to your marriage partner. That's the intent. As one writer says, um, you don't try to fly an aeroplane by following the instructions for making a crash, land, crash landing. So what the, uh, which is what the Pharisees are, are trying to do. We know that marriages do break up and we have compassion on those that do. But in this, Jesus is trying to protect the women. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child would never enter it. It's about helplessness. How does a little... It's about helplessness. Maybe it's about childlike faith, but primarily it's about how do children come just completely helplessly. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, Mark will explain that next term, but out of Luke. Um, looking forward to that. So I won't go there. And then the, the thing about... Um, James and John, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other um, at your left in glory. You know that a conversation is not going to go well when somebody comes up, say, uh, will you do, we want you to do for us whatever you ask. It's just not how the kingdom of God works, is it? It's not about where you come in the pecking order. It's about serving. It's about recognising that you have been served by Christ. You've been served by Jesus in a saving way. You've served by him when he went to the cross. Glory then. The glory is in serving. The glory is not in status. But I want us to get to Bartimaeus. Um, really, because he's here for a reason. Um, as we get into chapter 11, we, we, we're going to get into, into Jerusalem and we're going to get, um, after 
after the triumphal entry, we're going to get into the trial and the, and the passion of Jesus. But before we do, we've got one more miracle, uh, and this is Bartimaeus. He's the only person in Matthew, Mark, and Luke who is named. Um, so he must be significant. Maybe he became part of the, um, you know, disciple of Jesus. Here is a man who is literally sidelined. He is marginalized, literally. Uh, he's sitting by the side of the road begging. Though he's blind, he recognizes who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. And as the son of David, he is the son of God. He is loud and persistent. He is determined to get himself before Christ, even though he's castigated by the crowd. So he gets himself in front of Jesus. Uh, and when Jesus asks what he wants, he doesn't say, Jesus says, what do you want? And he doesn't say, say like James and John, I want to sit at your right hand when I get in glory. He says, I want to see. I just, I just want to see. And Jesus says, go. Your faith, faith is just inability, impotence, bringing itself before Christ. Your faith has healed you. It's the same word for saved. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has, has saved you. And Bartimaeus sees. And he throws his cloak to one side. Now one writer says Jericho is pretty hot all year round. You don't really need a cloak. Uh, his cloak is, is a bit of his begging apparatus. And so he, he throws his cloak to one side. He's not going to play the victim anymore. And he gets up. Jesus has told him to go, but he doesn't go. He follows Jesus down the road towards Jerusalem into danger and to death. He's the model disciple where people would just start off blind um, to who Jesus is. Come to a point. You have to come to a point in your blindness of nevertheless seeing that Jesus of Nazareth is actually God in human form. And then we see, and seeing we, we, we throw away what gets in the way, give away, uh, throw away our victim status, get up, follow him into danger. So we've, we've dashed through, I know we have this morning. Have you seen Jesus as he really is? Have you seen Jesus for who he really is? There's a verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of, the, of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So basically, what Paul's saying is, is at some point, if you're a Christian today, at some point, um, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has said something similar to your heart. He has said, let the, let the glory uh, of Christ shine into your heart so you can see it with your, with your heart's eye. So Jesus... Jesus, if you're a Christian this morning, at some point Jesus has given you, um, or, father, or rather God has given you your own little 
moment of transfiguration when you see Jesus as he really is. But you won't see until you come into the handed. And it takes a miraculous work to see Jesus as he really is. So we've got this fine mark next week, um, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Are you following? That's the question. Are you following him? Are you going? Are you going with him? This is a, a dangerous and a, a difficult journey. It's not a journey full of glory as we know it. It's a journey full of the glory of being considered numpties and the glory of serving Jesus in and with one another. Are you coming? Are you on the road? Are you coming? Are you ready to give up your victim status? And are you ready for it to be hard? Let's pray. Lord, we're taking a whistle-stop tour through Mark 9 and 10. I pray, Father, you give us sight of Jesus. Just help us see Jesus, who he really is. And I guess we'll see clear, more clearly in the next few weeks what glory really is. For Jesus, glory is, is to is to lay down his life. I pray for, for each of us, pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you uh, give each of us a little, a clearer vision, a little moment of transfiguration of seeing Jesus for who he really is. So that, Lord, when we come day by day in our mind's eye to you, we're clearer are more real, are more honest, and more ready to, ready for it to be hard.